Hey, welcome to the Kayla Mason podcast. Super excited for you to be spending some of your time and listening here with us today. And today my guest is John Mark Comer. Um, and we're going to uh, get into him and our conversation in a little bit. But before we do that, I want to let you know that the music that you're listening to is provided by Sam Massey. And so if you have any need for any music, if you have a business and need any music or video needs, Sam is the person for you to hit up and ask for all of those things. And he would love to do that for you. But as I mentioned earlier, hey, my guest is John Mark Comer. And John Mark has recently authored the book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, How to Stay Emotionally Healthy and Spiritually Alive in the Chaos of the Modern World. And he's also written many other things such as Loveology, Garden City, and God Has a Name. John Mark is from Portland, and he is the pastor for teaching vision at Bridgetown Church, uh, really right in the center of the city. And their church is built around the very simple idea of practicing the way of Jesus together in Portland. And so this is a really great conversation. It's really, this uh, conversation, really, this book um, is one of one of my favorites from, from 2019 that we got to have. And it really just hit me at the right time, you know, as, uh, as I've mentioned before on the podcast. Um, 2019 was really kind of a year of, of pruning for me and a year of trying to slow down so I could be more effective in, um, in what I'm supposed to do. And John Mark's book and his work was really, um, really critical for me that season. And so I'm excited to bring you my conversation with John Mark Comer. John Mark, so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. It's so fantastic to be here, man. I, I love the vision behind this podcast. Love what you're doing. It's such an honor to come on. Yeah. And super excited to talk with you about your book, which is out, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And, and you kind of start out by, you know, painting a picture of where, where you're currently at, you know, years ago in this season of just hurry and stress and can, can you just start out by taking us back there and kind of what, what life was like back then? Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, not that different from <laughs> any other millennial, yeah. you know? I mean, it, it comes through your own iterations. And I, I was leading a, a mega church at the time, and it was kind of crazy. And we had, you know, almost 100 people on staff and, you know, multiple different locations. And I was preaching six times on a Sunday. So I guess that is not super common, but honestly, like it's just the same story on repeat across an entire generation, whether it's a full-time mom or dad or, uh, you know, barista or entrepreneur or lawyer or med student or whatever pastor, whatever you do with your life, you don't have to have some, you know, crazy demand job to get sucked into the speed of our age. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I had just turned, just kind of entered my thirties which is interesting, you know, there's that kind of plasticity in your 20s where like you have this sense when you're early 20s, mid 20s, like who will I become? 
you have this sense, you know, at least if you come from an upwardly mobile culture, like the sky is the limit, you know, anything could happen. Um, and then, you know, that feeling goes away and it's replaced by, well, this is who I became. Dang it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or and like that sense of anything's possible. It, it just, it goes down a little bit each year. I don't mean that in a cynical way. Actually, it's been so life-giving and freeing for me and I feel more joyful now and free and content than I ever have so I don't think it's a bad thing but definitely is an emotional adjustment so I think I was just coming into that phase where you know by the time you're maybe in your early 30s you've kind of had a decade post-college or a decade into adulting I love that we've now turned adult into a verb that's a classic millennial trope but and so I think you have enough of a track record under your belt to kind of chart the trajectory out of who you're becoming and I just did that little mental exercise. I was really unhappy. I mean, it's, it's all the common stuff. I was anxious. I was not very happy. I was addicted to my phone. I was way over busy. I was not the husband and father that I wanted to be. I was becoming less compassionate and loving year over year, not more, which is the whole point of following Jesus. I was getting sucked into some of the anger and constant irritation and arrogance of social media, you know, culture, which has just done nothing but spiral out of control since then. And I mean, on, honestly, basically, I was just living as an American in the 21st century with an iPhone, you know, basically. And um, but I had enough time under my belt to have that that existential kind of moment of, OK, pause, consider, envision this trajectory out 20, 30, 40, 50 years envision myself as a 60, 70, 80 year old man, who do I see on the horizon? And that thought experiment was terrifying. It, like I did not like who I saw, you know, and I was hopefully still successful by the American metrics, but I was a failure by the metrics that really mattered in the kingdom of God and just in human flourishing, you know? So um, it was real kind of, uh, it was a real kind of moment of existential, like I, I would call it an early midlife crisis. Although now we have the quarter life crisis. So if, I think it was just my life is everybody else's life. You know, it's just like you get to that spot where all of a sudden we're not having fun anymore. And the busyness and the hurry is now doing something corrosive to your soul, to your um, relationship to the spirit of God. And um, I, I was in a really bad way. Mm -hmm. So like looking back on it, can you notice any patterns or any things that were kind of drawing you into that life of hurry or encouraging you or leading you into that life of hurry? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's the workaholism thing that I was prone to. I was in a job that I loved. I stopped loving it after a while, but early on, I loved it. And, you know, as you know, as a pastor, church, whether it's a large church or a small church, does not matter, is people. And people, um, all of us, myself included, we're like a black hole of need. You know what I mean? There's no, it's not a task. It's not a widget. It's not like you get done at 5 p.m. You're like, cool, done. We made our widgets for the day. It's people. It's the growth of the soul. It's when you put people together, all the conflict that comes from that, which is part of the thing. It's part of what's supposed to happen to bring us into our full selves as love. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think work was a big part of it. Church was a big part of it. My phone was a big part of it. I mean, remember, we're only, what, 12 years into the smartphone. Mm -hmm. So we're still, I was chatting to this guy, Alan Fadling, yesterday, and I love, he called the phone um, our human experiment in omnipresence. And I love it. And it, we're really like 12 years into an experiment. And I think the early results are, are really catastrophic. So there's the phone thing. We were starting to have kids. You know, that's a whole, I don't know if you have any kids, Caleb, but that's a whole, but do you have any kids? I do not, no. You do not, yeah. So, so that's a whole, sorry, forgive me for not knowing no, the details of your okay. relational life. 
I, um, th that's a whole thing, you know? So I think it was a lot of that stuff, but then there's deeper stuff, you know, um, John Ortberg has this great line about hurry. He writes, hurry isn't just the sign of a disordered schedule. It's the sign of a disordered heart. Mm -hmm. And I think underneath all of the, I work too much. I have too many commitments. I'm too busy at church. I'm on my phone. I have kids underneath that. I think there's more than just a logistical problem. I think there's a human condition problem, a trust anxiety problem, a priority, or if you want to use the more Christian term, idolatry problem. I think there's a wound, you know, I think there's something deeper in our human self that is, that hurry is a sign of, you know, we're running to either get away from something or catch up to something because we're scared to actually slow down and face reality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that's something that I think I've discovered too, just, just in my own life is whether it be hurry or using hurry as a distraction um, to, to ignore the things that are happening, you know, deeper in my soul and even in, in my internal work um, as well. Can, can, you yes. talk, can you talk about, you know, you mentioned John Ortberg and you, and you write in the book um, about, a, about a lunch that you had with him and kind of the impact that you had that that had on you can you talk about first of all like what what led you to go like was it an intentional thing was it an accidental thing for you reaching out to john what what did that look like yeah so if you don't know john orberg he is in my opinion one of the best pastor teacher writers of the generation ahead of me he's not elderly he's still alive and teaching and doing beautiful work in the world he's in his 60s now and um, incredible thinker and leader. And I reached out to him. I had a relational connection. My best friend lives in San Francisco, and John is in Menlo Park, just you know, 40 minutes south or whatever in the Bay Area. So I kind of had an in through my best friend. And um, I wanted to get with John, as did my friend, Dave Lomas and I, because John was, first off, just because he's older, wiser, rock star of a pastor, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, I mean that in the positive sense, but yeah. <laughs> also because he was mentored for over 20 years by Dallas Willard and Dallas Willard, if you're not familiar with him, was a philosopher from the university of Southern California who did a lot of academic work around the disappearance of moral knowledge in Western culture, but is best known in the church world that you and I are in, um, as a writer, wrote about 10 books later in his life, all in his fifties and sixties and as a teacher of the way of Jesus, and as really um, a, a voice calling the Western church to back to discipleship, or as he would say, apprenticeship to Jesus, to a theology of the kingdom of God, and to a working theory of spiritual formation. And um, so Willard's writings ha have just absolutely no hyperbole here, have revolutionized the way that I view what it means to follow Jesus and the way that I actually do follow Jesus. No other thinker, you know, most pastors have like some thinker that's their thinker, you know? So like it's Martin Luther for a ton of people or it's C.S. Lewis for, you know, you read any book by Tim Keller and there's going to be mm -hmm. like 20 C.S. Lewis quotes in there, you know, yeah. or it's John Calvin or it's, you know, who, whoever it is for each. And I think that's a good thing. I mean that not in a condescending way. I think it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. For me, it's, all, it's always been, for years, it's been Dallas Willard. Like he, outside of the writers in the New Testament, his framework for what it, spiritual life in the kingdom has really done more than anybody else that I'm aware of to shape the way I, I follow Jesus and do my best to help other people follow Jesus. And um, John Ortberg was mentored by Willard for 20-something years. So that was one, I just wanted to like 
Willard died. I never got a chance to meet him, which I'm really mm -hmm. sad about, or sit under his teaching in person. And so I just wanted to get with John and, you know, one of the big questions I'm asking as a pastor is how do we work spiritual formation into local churches? Because the spiritual formation movement that started with Dallas Willard and Richard Foster and many others, it never really made it into the architecture of local churches. And it never, the, it was never really, the baton was never passed, not in a bad way, it just was never really translated to millennial culture, mm -hmm. to a, a Portland, you know what I mean? Most of those beautiful writers are writing and teaching and thinking inside a world where there's a major problem with like the angry, you know, God's the angry mad old man in the sky thing and judgmentalism and legalism. That is so not my world. People are, you know, my church is full millennials. We're in the least religious city in the country. People are far more likely to think of Jesus as like a really progressive woke yoga coach than they are as an angry, you know, tyrant in the sky who's mad at them. Legalism is not the problem. Liberalism is at a moral, mm -hmm. theological, every level, you know? So um, I'm just trying to translate all this beautiful work that's been done. So I wanted to get with Ortberg kind of for help with that and mentorship in my own, just my own life, my own formation. And what would this look like in a local church? And as a result, I started just pumping him for stories about Willard, hence the one that the book is named after. Yeah. Yep. So where, where exactly in relation to, you know, you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed with hurry, where in relation does the John Artberg story take place? It takes place um, a year or two after I stepped down from leading a mega church. So I kind of basically had like that early midlife crisis, burnout, um, you know, existential, you know, angst, like who am I becoming? Very long story short, I stepped down from leading this multi-site megachurch, and um, we are a multi-site church, so I was able to not really leave the church, but just kind of um, move over and just pastor one of our smaller churches in the city, where my heart really was, and we were in that area, and um, went on sabbatical, came back, and I began to just make some pretty drastic changes to my life, mm -hmm. and it was sometime, I have to get the exact date, but it was maybe a year after I got back from sabbatical mm -hmm. that I had that lunch with John and came across the story about him and Willard and you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life and hurry's the great enemy. And I was already on, I think the journey, I would already come through less hours. I was, you know, really into Sabbath at that point. I was coming mm -hmm. to the spiritual disciplines. I was in therapy. I was doing a lot of the things I was beginning to recognize that my phone was actually a major emotional and spiritual threat and beginning to slowly but surely take strides and you know toward a rule of life with my phone but that it was like what that story was for, for me or that line you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life hurry's the great enemy spiritual life in our day um have you ever had i don't know i don't know if you ever had this experience my, we have because my wife's had uh chronic kind of on and off health issues for a number quite a long time there's this horrible feeling when you're having symptoms of pain and you don't know what's causing it Mm -hmm. and you don't have a diagnosis. You don't know what's wrong. You just know that I don't feel good. This doesn't work. I'm having this problem, this problem. I don't know what's wrong. Therefore, you feel powerless, and you feel hopeless, and you don't know how to change it because you don't know what's wrong. Mm -hmm. So there's this like incredible, happy, powerful, freeing moment 
when the doctor puts a name to the root cause underneath all of your symptoms, even if it's bad news, yeah. even, or it's like, or it's going to take something really drastic to heal it, fix it. You still feel happy. Like this is the inner psychology. People will find out they have a really bad cancer and walk out of the hospital happy. Like if, if, if like, this is such a weird, you don't hear these stories much, but the psychology of it is because living with ambiguity like that and living with symptoms with no diagnosis, it is so painful. Mm -hmm. And I know that from personal experience with just my own wife's, my wife's journey. So I think for me, I was living with all of these symptoms, low grade anxiety. I was not very happy. I was not becoming a person of love. It was really hard to say no. I was addicted to my phone. You know, I felt couldn't really sit still with God very well, struggling to like feel my soul, like all of these symptoms. And I think hearing Willard say, or hearing John tell me what Willard said, you know, that hurries the great enemy. I, I had this, it was just like, it was that moment of like naming, oh, this is the root cause. And it's so weird. Like I had this gut, when I first heard that, I had two equal and opposite reactions. My mind said, that's ridiculous. Hurry. Like, really, that's the problem. You know, most people use like hurry and hustle, hustle, at least in a positive sense, mm -hmm. you know, like, yeah, we're all about it. We work really hard and we make it happen. Um, like really hurries, the, that's the number one challenge or whatever. My mind just said that's ridiculous. But my gut said the exact opposite. Like, yep, you just put language to reality. It's almost like you ever heard like a tuning fork like they use for pianos or whatever? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there's like, like you hit, you know, middle C or whatever it is with a tuning fork and like all the glass shakes around you and you like, you feel it in your bones, kind of your bones, like tremor. There's like this deep resonance. And that's what I think at a emotional, spiritual gut level, there was, it was like a tuning fork moment. It was like, yes, this, that right there, that's reality. Mm -hmm. And uh, so really that was, you know, I don't know how many years ago, four years ago, five years. And I've, I've just been, that's been my journey. And it's been way harder than any of the other things I've done way harder than stepping down from leading a large church way harder than Sabbath way harder than sabbatical way harder than th it's been slowing my life down while not going off to become a Benedictine monk with no family that's not a, 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 a it's not a slam on that I'm jealous of anything but um, but while staying faithful to my wife and children and church and life in the modern world has been one of the most difficult things I've ever done so I just wanted to write a little bit about my journey and, and try to offer people some practical help for that, that attempt to slow down. Yeah. And I, and I want to get to kind of, kind of what you're doing right now uh, in a little bit, but I, but I want to rewind a little bit to going back to whenever you were talking about that thought experiment that you were having and you, you imagined yourself, you know, 50 years in the future and you just couldn't see it happening. Cause yeah. I think a lot of people find themselves there you know, maybe, maybe right now as they're listening to it and they're imagining the future, what did, what did the next steps look like for you after having that thought experiment? And even what, what did the conversations look like, you know, just as you're talking about, you know, with leaving the mega church and then, you know, talking with your wife as well and friends, like talk, talk to us about what that looked like. Yeah, I mean, I make decisions in community. So I've, I've been in the same little home community for 10 years and, you know, we, we're, we're pretty passionate about kind of communal decision making. We do our budgets together every year. So we don't just like decide to quit our job and inform the group or whatever, which is pretty American, you know. So I think I had a nice little network of relationships in place. 
I had a couple great mentors and family members to process. You know, I'm pretty um, like some people are irresponsible. Other people are too responsible. I'm the latter. Like <laughs> I, I'm, I'm dutiful, not and sometimes into an unhealthy degree. Well, I keep doing things kind of beating a dead horse, not beating dead, that's a negative way to say it, but mm -hmm. I'll, I'll do things longer than I should sometimes. So I'm the opposite of, you know, quick to bail. I mean, we all bail at times, but so I think it was really hard. I felt guilt and shame for even thinking about, you know, leaving my job or whatever. And that was a really difficult, hard, emotional thing. It felt like death. It felt like failure at the time. I have never felt like more of a failure in my entire life. Now I look back and just thank God and I'm so gracious and I see all sorts of mistakes I made as a leader and feel a lot of humility about that, but I feel so grateful and free to be in a different place and on a different trajectory. But um, yeah, so it was a really hard thing that I went through for sure, processing in community, Not it wasn't a quick thing. Um, and for me, unfortunately, for most people it doesn't involve this, but for me, to change the trajectory involved, you know, a change in my job and kind of my mm -hmm. career path is, is maybe too secular of language for it, ministry track, whatever you want to call it. Um, and for most people, it's not that drastic, but for some people, including myself, my kind of job trajectory, I, I just didn't see a way on that path where I could live a life that was focused more on becoming a person of love. Um, I just, I didn't see a way to do that. And with my personality and emotional capacity. So that was the first kind of big thing. And then everything else after that was a series of more doable things, stepping into therapy, beginning to practice Sabbath, changing our lifestyle, moving into Christian simplicity, moving to where we live within walking distance of everything. Um, those were all fun, more fun and easier and less emotional. Um, you know, explorations of, of new ways of being. Mm -hmm. Why, why do you think they were so much easier? Um, you know, I don't think identity was tied to them in the same way. You know, we get so wrapped up in our, our, our work becomes our identity. And that's not true for a lot of people, but especially for people who are in more of a vocation, you know, mm -hmm. like a job that is, they feel like it's a part of their calling in life. Which I know is not everybody, but for um, for people that do kind of really, it's I mean, it's so easy to have your work become your identity, and in our culture, very much a you are what you do kind of mentality is very prevalent for a lot of people, and it's really hard when you're a pastor because you can mask things like ego and ambition and and narcissism even in you know kind of really sanitized christianese language of spirituality you know like it's very like I, I, it's hard for me to think of a job where it's easier to do the right thing for the wrong reason than in pastoring you know what i mean mm -hmm. because it's not like i mean most of the stuff we do is good of course there are ways to do it that are you know not but most of the stuff is like good stuff but it's so easy to do it not for love and not out of call of God, but out of egocentricity, out of ambition, out of a desire to make it, or greed, or power. I mean, all sorts of nasty things can be down in that motivation center that will eventually drive you. All of those motivations will drive you toward hurry, all of them, and then past hurry over the ledge into some kind of ruin. You know, I mean, how many stories have we heard of pastors over the last five, 10 years? Major scandals, and it wasn't an affair. And it wasn't you know, like they stole money. It was just basically 
leaders that were really emotionally unhealthy had lost the spiritual formation kind of track, were not very loving, not very kind, and, and were just kind of let their relationships spun out of control, you know? And it was like these, these major scandals, but like there wasn't the traditional scandal of the affair or that, you know? And that, that was really sobering to me as a young leader, watching these leaders that clearly had the, the spirit of God on them and watching them end up out of the running just because, uh, you know, at some level, this is an oversimplification, but they just got sucked in, you know, and ego and ambition took over and pride and busyness and, you know, isolation and not in community and so these, these common themes that you see across these stories. And so I, th I think there was a, a grace in that, as tragic as those stories were. It's a grace for me as a younger leader to have that and, and realize, oh, wow. Oh, wow. I remember my, my mentor said to me once, you know, I was trying to discern what the, what the enemy was doing in my life, and I just felt really tired. And he said, you know, if the enemy can't under-promote you, he'll over-promote you faster than your character and your rhythms of grace can sustain you. And, you know, we just don't think that way. We don't think about, oh, the enemy would, would over-promote me in my leadership, you know, give me too much success because he knows I can't actually handle it. I actually don't have the rhythms of grace to sustain it, so I'll, I'll flame out, you know, and then more eyes are watching you when you flame out. It's really an ingenious strategy that I think we fall for that ploy a lot. Mm -hmm. what, uh, what gauges or dials or... Um, what, what have you put in place to help make sure that you don't get back to that, to that unhealthy pace? Yeah. I mean, first off, I would not say like I used to be yeah. hurried. Now <laughs> I just live in like yeah. Jesus Zen 24 yeah. seven. I'm never in a hurry anymore, you know, <laughs> but by the way, it's the worst thing ever writing. I mean, I've had such fun writing this book. It's by far my favorite of any of, the, any of my previous work. I, I like this book. I think this book's far better than anything else I've done. But it's the worst because now every time I'm in a hurry, I feel guilt and shame. <laughs> and I will think to myself as I'm like yelling at my kids to get in the car because we're late, you literally wrote the book on hurry. Yeah. <laughs> you literally wrote the book on this. You know, so Again, um, man, I, I have so much compassion for the struggle to get this stuff out of, you know, pages in a book or in ideas in a podcast and into our muscle memory. But I mean, I've been pretty rigorous about just some practices from the way of Jesus and some not necessarily from the way of Jesus that um, really mitigate against hurry. So there's four that in, are in the book that have become kind of four anchor practices for me to, to kind of acts of resistance against hurry. So it's silence and solitude, Sabbath simplicity and slowing those are kind of my four acts of resistance against hurry then you know i've been crafting kind of a rule of life and a digital rule of life so have some pretty strict prohibitions around my phone and um, some stuff like that and then as well as just community and trying to work it out in community but again man i, I do not have yeah. i know this terrain i'm doing this stuff but it's not like follow me around and you're just always going to just be like super chillaxed and always happy and present to the moment. I, I get sucked back in constantly and then I just have to restart. It's funny, even as this book is coming out, I'm doing all these wonderful podcast interviews and talking to people and traveling and speaking. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute here. <laughs> you know, like, okay. Yeah can't hurry to go out and talk about slowing down, you know, so having to be really disciplined as much as I possibly can. And every day there's things 
that I can't get to. I mean, this is my last thing for the day because it's not that late West Coast time, but my son has a 14th birthday party um, in, you know, 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is my last thing. I have like 10 more things I need to get done today. And so I just have to live with that. You know what? Those aren't going to get done. And that is what it is. And there'll be people that wish they had an email from me and da 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 da. But I need to go be present to my son. And I need to go hang out with some middle school kids and eat pizza and, you know, do our stuff. Because that, that's what matters in the end. Mm-hmm. What, what has helped you build that type of mentality of, you know, hey, I have all this stuff that still needs done, but, but I'm okay with leaving it where it is? Man, this might sound like such a trite answer, and I don't mean it like in a sac- you know, in a, I don't mean it in that sacrimonious kind of way. But mm-hmm. Jesus, like, I'm so captivated by the person of Jesus of Nazareth. I'm so captivated by um, how unhurried he was. You know, Willard was once asked if you could describe Jesus in one word, what would it be? And he thought about it for a minute. And you know what he said? He said, relaxed. <laughs> and it's so funny. Like of all the like adjectives in the English language, relaxed. Mm-hmm. But man, the Jesus that I read, I, I try to, you know, whenever possible, read the Gospels every single day, 365 days a year. Even if it's just the great thing about the Gospels, you can read like a paragraph. You know what I mean? There's so many. Mm-hmm. Pericope is the scholarly term, as you know. A little pericope. It doesn't have to be like some long passage try to read it every single day. And um, I'm just so captivated by how present he was to the moment, how unhurried, how much of his story was um, interruptions, how many of the stories in the Gospels were interruptions in his day, how much time he would spend in rest and in quiet before reentering in a prayer. I just find him captivating. And I find the vision that we get from Jesus of God as a Trinitarian community of love, of Father and Son and Spirit, that was spilling over with compassionate love and generosity so much that this Trinitarian community gave one of themselves. The father gave the son um, because he loved the world that much. Uh, and that that's what life is about. It's about participating in the life in this, of this Trinitarian community of love and receiving love from the Trinitarian community through Jesus and by the spirit and then giving that same love to others to invite them into the Trinitarian community. That, I mean, that, that, that for me is like, so that's not just theology that that's like a mental map that I want to build my entire life around. I I just find that I don't mean to sound like sanctimonious. I find that really compelling. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I want to hit on something uh, that you said a little bit earlier. You talked about your life rules and your digital rules. Can you just give what a couple of those might look like? Yeah. So actually, I don't mean um, rules per se, like in a Jordan Peterson sense, but uh, though I I have rules too, but I mean like a rule of life, uh, which is so interesting. It's um, that's really uh, unused language for most Protestants in the modern world. So if you don't, if you're hearing that, you're like rule of life, what is that? And I don't want more rules. I don't like rules. I'm a high P on the Mars Briggs or whatever. Um, don't remotely, first off, don't feel bad for not knowing that language. It's, it's just not talked about a lot in the Protestant stream in the late modern church. And two, it's not rules for life, but rule of life. So it kind of, it's a really, I think it seems like a really bad English translation. The Latin is regula. And um, the etymology of that word is basically, it was the word used for a trellis. So the, the simplest explanation of a rule of life 
is John chapter 15, one of Jesus' most important teachings, abide in the vine and you will bear much fruit. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Most Christians know this. And if you think about, so the early Christians, by the, at least the second century, were talking about this idea of a rule of life. And it was made super famous by St. Benedict in the fifth century, but it was, it's much older than that. And they basically use this metaphor of, you know, a vineyard, of, of a vine, of a grape plant, and said, all right, if you want to bear a bunch of fruit to make wine and all this stuff, for a, for a vine to grow well and bear a lot of fruit, it has to have a trellis. If you think of like, you don't really have vineyards in Ohio, do you? No, not, not a whole okay. lot. So we have a lot here. Pacific Northwest, you know, there's 30 minutes from my house is wine country, right? So it, for, you, you go out there and there's different types and there's different shapes and different sizes, but all of the vineyards have a trellis. It's like this wooden structure underneath the vine. And if the vine just grows on the ground, first off, it bears very little fruit. And secondly, the little fruit that it does bear is, you know, open at that point to wild animals, coyote, a rabbit or whatever. And third, it's also susceptible to disease. So, you know, a farmer has to get it up off the ground in this trellis to create space for it really just to flourish and thrive and bear the maximum amount of fruit that, and Jesus has that line, and your fruit will remain, right? And he even talks about what happens when it gets drags on the ground and all that kind of stuff in John 15. So, a rule of life is what a trellis is to a vine. It is a structure and a schedule and a set of practices that create space for us to abide in the vine, to live in ongoing relational connection to the Trinitarian community of love, to live from our deepest desires and most important priorities, and to let our life be proactive, not reactive, but actually live what Jesus called life to the full. So um, it, it, there's no right way to do it. There's no wrong way to do it. It can be really simple. It can be really complex. It can be really rigid. It can still be more spontaneous. But as a general rule, it has something to do with practices, with spiritual disciplines, something to do with your schedule, something to do with some of your core values, something to do with some of your financial commitments, time commitments. So for me, it'd be things like morning prayer is essential. Like I do, my phone is not next to my bed. I don't turn on my phone until every morning I've spent time in the scriptures, in prayer, and reading for a while. That's a big part of my rule of life. Sabbath is a part of my rule of life. Um, giving a certain percentage of our income and to different, these different sources is a part of my rule of life. Sharing a meal once a week with the same 15 people and doing life in openness and honesty, that's a part of my rule of life. Um, you know, certain work habits are part of a rule of my life. Certain family commitments, date night is a part of my rule of life. You know, a weekly touch point with my son where we are taking him through an initiation right to manhood. These are all of this. I don't really bifurcate out. Some people just do the spiritual disciplines. I try to kind of put mm -hmm. everything in there. Work really in the attempt to like make all of my life discipleship to Jesus. So yeah. it can be, again, it can be really complex or it can be super simple. Mm -hmm. um, but a rule of life is just a way that we create space for life, you know? Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. We've talked a lot about eliminating hurry and kind of the benefit that it's had in your spiritual health and your emotional health as well. What other decisions have you made that have greatly contributed to becoming more emotionally and spiritually healthy? Um, working through emotionally healthy spirituality from Pete Scazzaro and New Life Fellowship. That's been a number of years now. And I've had the privilege of sitting with Pete a few times. That's been, I can't put into words what that's done for me, um, especially a lot of the family of origin stuff. And I've come from a great home, but it's still been really helpful. Mm -hmm. Therapy has been life changing. 
Um, I, it's hard to put into words, you know, what therapy has done to me. Um, you know, exploring uh, one of those four practices, the practice of simplicity, which is kind of like the Christian version of minimalism, um, which maybe sounds a little bit more ominous than I think it actually is. That has been, that's been really life-changing. Simplicity in my possessions, you know, things like clothing and, you know, how many pairs of shoes I own and stuff like that, but then also simplicity in my um, hobbies, in my habits, in my relationships, and, you know, so, um, yeah, the some of those exploration moments have been really key for me. Mm -hmm. Can you, you've brought up therapy a few times. Can you talk a little bit about the benefit that therapy has been to you? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't really recommend therapy anymore than you can recommend church, you know, yeah. like some therapists and some churches are do more harm than good. As a general rule, I think most therapists and most churches are great, but you have, you have to go into it with eyes open, you know? if we're just honest. So, yeah, I mean, I grew up in a church culture. I don't, I don't know what kind of culture you come from, Caleb, but I came up in one, and I say this without any cynicism, I'm actually really grateful for my upbringing, but where, you know, it was that kind of classic evangelical, non-denominational, conservative, but pretty nice thing. And therapy was right up there with like Satanism and secular music. You know what I mean? It was yeah. like, which were the same yep. thing, by the way. Um, and of course, yeah. Therapy was evil. It was secular. It was especially evil for a pastor. It was like only, you know, for you after you had an affair and were fired as part of your church discipline, you know? So if you went mm -hmm. to failure, if you went to therapy, it was a sign of failure, you know? So obviously I disagree with every single thing in that. And yep. I do, I want to respect what they, I think they were right to, I mean, evangelicalism has a, a, a fear-based paranoia that I think is woven into the genesis of where it, where it started from in America, not globally, but in America, not in England, not in Australia, but in America. I think because a lot of evangelicalism started as a reaction against liberalism, there's this fear of liberal, and not all of that fear is unfounded. As somebody who's living in a super liberal post-Christian city, I'm telling you, there's no romanticism in my eyes around that at all. Mm -hmm. But fear as a general heart posture, I think creates some unhealthy ways of being. And um, it creates ghetto culture and all that kind of stuff. So I think there was a fear of therapy. Some of that fear was right. You know, if you think about Freud, a Freudian worldview, for example, and Freud's been mostly totally disproven by all the recent social science stuff. Like most, my understanding is most therapists don't actually take his ideas seriously anymore, but his influence over Western culture as a whole, I mean, from the Nike phrase, just do it to therapist office to, you know, uh, Woody Allen's follow your heart, you know, to you do you. I mean, this is all you could, tr I think you can trace all of that stuff back to a Freudian worldview. So I understand the fear of it, but there is a kind of therapy that is Christian in its worldview and informed about the life of the soul that I think is so beautiful. I mean, psychology is from the, the psyche. That's the, like the root word there is the Greek word for soul. Psyche, you know, psuche in Greek is the word for soul, you know? So psychology at one level is just the life and growth and healing of the soul. And what is that if not the spiritual journey with Jesus? the life and health and growth and healing of the soul toward love. So, yeah, I think for me, I, I just was fortunate enough to end up with an incredible therapist right off the bat, 70 something year old PhD Quaker dude, super solid follower of Jesus, former pastor. 
and I've been with him, I think seven years now. And it has been, if, if I were to write an autobiography, which I won't cause four people would care, but my two of them would be my parents. Um, I, I, I would put that as in one of the most life changing trajectory altering experiences of my whole life has been sitting with a therapist for seven years. Um, what a gift. What a gift. Yeah. So I'm, a, I'm not a fan of therapy. I'm a huge fan of good therapy, ideally from a follower of Jesus, if possible. Yeah. What, what would you say are one or two qualities that make your therapist someone that, that, that is a good therapist? Because, you know, for people who are interested in going to therapy and maybe they're, you know, trying to discern, what would you say are one or two qualities then in your therapist that have really helped you? Um, I think for me, it's really, I used to think, you know, well, it doesn't really matter if your therapist is a Christian or not or whatever. I, I don't know that I agree with that anymore. I think it's really important for me personally mm-hmm. that he or she has a Jesus-shaped worldview and that they will encourage me toward Christ-like love. You know what I mean? Because so much of what your process is in therapy is my marriage is hard or parenting is hard or I want to quit this or I don't like this person or, you know, how do I, and to have somebody who's constantly, gently, non-judgmentally, compassionately calling me back basically to self-sacrificial agape and calling me back to take up the cross and to find joy in living a life of fidelity and love, man, that, that's been such a gift to me. Um, two, I would, I would look for a therapist that isn't just trying to help you like patch your life together so you can get back to feeling good and being successful, but try to find a therapist that is really, um, trying to help you face the reality of your life with calm joy. You know, M Scott Peck, who's a, a therapist I love, who wasn't a Christian when he wrote this, he became a Christian later in life but he defined mental health as um, dedication to reality at all costs. And I love that dedication to reality at all costs. Um, His book, uh, The Road Less Traveled is one one of my all-time favorite books. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so I think somebody that will help you face reality rather than escape reality through mental tricks is huge. And then as always, somebody that will just listen non-judgmentally and lovingly and just hold you in their presence that's i mean that we can't underestimate that that's such a gift you know yep so on a much lighter note i want to ask you uh yeah shoot of uh questions so you've you've mentioned a few people um you know dallas willard and john ortberg and pete scazzaro who who are some other you know authors or thought leaders that have profoundly shaped you know who you are yeah that's a i love that yes that's um those three for sure have been um, really key. Ronald Rollheiser is another one for me. He's a Catholic writer. Um, he has a couple of, I mean, he has a lot of books out. Uh, Sacred Fire is my favorite by him, which is about discipleship in the middle years of your life. So don't read it if you're 24. Read it. But if you're, I don't know, 30s or you're kind of coming into that, you, if you just feel really tired from responsibility, like, then you're probably ready for Sacred Fire. There's <laughs> so another one called The Shattered Lantern that I, I just love. He's been huge. Um, some of my friends, honestly, they've been really huge. Yeah. Uh, Mark Sayers and John Tyson are both maybe five years older than me. And they're, the way they think about kind of church and post-Christian culture, discipleship has been really huge. And then I have a couple of friends my age, uh, along with those guys that have just been really good brothers to me that I think have helped me kind of move in a direct direction toward a lot of this kind of stuff. 
And then, yeah, I mean, just discovering, uh, I mean, I don't even know where to start. Robert Mulholland's work is amazing. Frank Laubach's stuff on practicing the presence of God, the practice of the presence of God is huge. N.T. Wright on theology, St. John and St. Teresa and on contemplative prayer, Ignatius of Loyola on Ignatian spirituality, lots of other influences, you know, John Wimber on the charismatic stuff. Um, but yeah, really Willard, Rollheiser, Scazzaro. I mean, those, those are some of my heroes in, in more recent memory. Yeah. And so uh, there, there'll probably be some overlap in this next question, but what are, what are some of the books that have most impacted you? Um, I think number one book is not one I necessarily go out and encourage you to read, but is The Spirit of the Disciplines by Dallas Willard, mm -hmm. which is one of his most difficult to read books. I, I literally don't think I really understood it until the third time I read it. You know, the first time I remember thinking like, uh, okay, that was really boring. I should do more spiritual disciplines. Second time, I, th I think the second time I actually started to understand it and was like, mm -hmm. oh my freaking gosh, this is such a paradigm <laughs> And then by the third time, I was like, okay, we have to change our entire church, you know? Mm -hmm. So um, if you're new to Willard, I wouldn't start there. Um, his easiest, most accessible, but still wonderful books are Life Without Lack, which was published posthumously. And it's actually, he didn't write it. It was based on uh, some talks that he gave. So it's so much easier to read. Mm -hmm. And then um, The Great Omission is another book by him. That's kind of his stuff in spiritual formation. That's, it's a pretty easy bar of entry. And then from there, maybe Renovation of the Heart, um, which is his book on kind of psychology and spiritual formation. It's incredible. And then the other stuff gets a lot harder, but it's it's so good. It's so good. Yep. And then lastly, what, what are you learning right now? Um, you know, I'm really interested in Ignatian spirituality right now, as well as in kind of monastic stuff. And I'm just trying to kind of learn more about that. And I'm really fascinated by Ignatius of Loyola, by the Jesuit order, and some by some core facets of Ignatian spirituality around um, the idea of indifference, or uh, it sounds like a, freedom is a better English word to translate that from Spanish, but his idea of indifference, and um, you know his prayer, to set your heart not on a long life or a short one, wealth or poverty, health or sickness, but whatever may, for everything has the potential of calling forth God's deeper life in me. You know, something I think I'm messing up that quote. So um, his stuff around the prayer of examine, his stuff around desire and discernment and reflection. I'm really interested in that right now. Yeah. Well, it sounds, it sounds, it sounds interesting to me. What, uh, like, have you started implementing any of that? Um, I'm attempting to do the daily prayer of examine. Um, you know, it's actually been really hard for me, uh, you know, because ideally you don't have to do it, but ideally you do it at the end of the day. And I just, you know, I'm normally kind of tired and need to get down to help make dinner. And um, so it's definitely not in my muscle memory yet the way that I want it to be. But mm -hmm. that's been a, a very slow step forward yeah. for me. Yeah. Well, John Mark, I know people are going to want to pick up uh, the book and continue to learn from you as well. Where's the best places for them to go to do those things? Oh, it's easy. The internet, John Mark Comer. You know, I think there's a .com out there that has all the stuff. You can find it there. Uh, podcasts. Our church is Bridgetown Church. We have a podcast where most of my teachings are. And then I host a little podcast with my friend Mark Sayers called This Cultural Moment. Mm -hmm. That's really, it's not every week, but it's really fun when we do it. And uh, there it is. New book's out. It's easy to find. Yeah. The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. If you want to go eliminate hurry ruthlessly, if you yes. don't, stay away from it. You've been warned. <laughs> If you want to, if you want fast and faster, 
listen to a different podcast on two times speed. I've had so many people say, I was listening to your thing on hurry and I was listening at two times speed because that's so common for podcasts. And like, I was so convicted. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, well, John, Mark, thanks so much for being on the learner's corner today. It's a joy, man. Thanks for what you do. Keep up the great work. Well, John, Mark, thanks for being on the podcast today. And really, thanks for writing the elimination of couriers. So so helpful for me. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast today. Uh, To make sure that you don't miss any of our episodes, hit the follow or hit the subscribe button as well. And then uh, leave us a rating and write a review on, on any podcast player that you may be using as well. Thanks so much for listening to the Caleb Mason podcast today. Until next time, keep learning and keep growing.